0: All right, so take your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter. We're in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're continuing. So where we've been, if you're here for the first time, to help you catch up. So a couple of weeks ago, we covered uh, fortitude, a man's challenge, and, or a woman's challenge, wives, and what Peter said to the wives. And then last week, we covered fortitude, a man or husband's challenge, and what God said to the husbands. And now this week, it'll be fortitude... Uh, what God is saying to the church, a church's challenge, All right? So we're just going to progress right down that and keep keep walking. I need two slides to get it all on this morning. So we'll, oops, there we go. All right, so let's read this together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. All right, let's come back to this one. Let's uh, pray this morning before we start. Lord, when it comes to your church, I, my assumption would be you know far more about the church than, than I do, and you know more for, far more about the church than we do, that uh, you understand some things that are powerful and important, uh, that are focus items, and Peter locks on to some of these this morning, and uh, we're going to talk about things that are hard for us, like unity and a brotherhood and those kind of things. And so we seek you this morning again that you would minister among us in your spirit that you would uh, have conversations. The conversations don't even necessarily need to be connected to the message. But Lord, that you would use this text and what Peter recorded through your power of your spirit uh, to edify today and to bring to clarity. And, and we ask that it would help us as a body. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right. All right. There we go. Okay. So let's read that again, this first part, and then we'll come back to the second part. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. All right. So I'm going to break this down because there's several uh, touch points there. So Finally, uh, all of you, and the first thing that he hits on is unity of mind, right? And uh, the idea there is that we should be like-minded. Now, right away, the skeptic comes in and goes, are you kidding me? I can't even get right in my own mind, let alone with other people. You know, I'm uh, like, I'm seldom on the same page with other people. How how are we supposed to do that? And it, it becomes something that we wrestle with quite a bit. Uh, and for most of us, this is where I think we get really nostalgic. We kind of look back at the early church and we kind of consider them the good old days, right? They really had the spirit and the freshness of the risen Christ and, and they were just naturally unified. And, and we've come so far and been so corrupted and so far removed that we can't get on the same page at all. And then the question that um, I'd raised this morning is, was it really? Was it really that way back then? You know, just think of the categories that they were trying to meld together and bring to unity of mind, right? And I just picked a bunch of them from that era that I was aware of. First one is uh, Jews and Gentiles, okay? That's like Republicans and Democrats, right? It just, you you ever get on the same page? You're supposed to laugh at that. Hello, okay, here we go, all right? Uh, You know, can you ever be on the same mind that way? And you know, this was a huge divide. Uh, we, we, it's hard to capture today how great the divide was between Jew and Gentiles. But the the Jews uh, disdained the Gentiles. They called them dogs. Okay, They just saw them as reprobates and lost and wasted and not of any account and worth their time. and And the Gentiles despised the Jews. They hated their uppity their haughtiness, their i am so rightness." And, uh And you can tell through history the reaction to the Jewish people has always been kind of antagonistic, right? And so the idea of now suddenly they come together in these fellowships and it, it wasn't like they had, you know, big mega churches back in the day where there were 5,000 people so you could hide. Right? We're talking about most of these are house churches, probably... Uh, the largest church was the one in Antioch. They guessed that one could have been from 125 to 300 people, but that was a rare exception back in the day. Most of them were house churches. So you're talking anywhere from like 20 to 65 to 75 people, right? Hard to hide in a group that small. You got a Jew in one side of the room and a Gentile in the other. It's pretty easy to see who they are, right? And think about that being brought together in unity of mind. That they would actually try to get on the same page together. That, that's a, a stunning uh, category. There's some other ones that you can see were problems for them uh, bringing together. How about the Roman and the conquered? Right? You got the Romans who were the conquerors, and you've got those who were conquered. And you say, well, they just prayed together. Oh, really? So Rome came plowing through their country, came plowing through their cities, came plowing through their towns, wiped out a bunch of people, probably a bunch of people they know. Now you're sitting across the table from one of those conquerors. How easy is that to be of the same mind? Right? And if you're the conquered, how do you feel towards that person who conquered you? And I suggest, boy, that's a, that's a pretty big rift in gap. Another one, you had the moral people and the prostitutes and tax gatherers, right? Now again, small groups, so small towns, right? Those of us who grew up in small towns, right? You know who's who, right? And all of a sudden, you're in a prayer group together, and the moral people are saying, "Dear Jesus, help them," right? <laughs> right? And and the, just think about that because you're suddenly bringing together all these different uh, walks of life that otherwise had no connection other than maybe in some business sense because marketing, uh, that kind of stuff had to be done. And so you you have a a really gap there. You had another one, soldiers and civilians, right? So you have people who are enlisted and then people who are civilians. And in those days, the Roman soldiers imposed upon the uh, civilians to do tasks of theirs, to carry their backpacks, that kind of stuff. And so... Uh, the civilians despised the Roman soldiers, hated what they represented. Again, going back to the Rome conquered conquerors thing. And uh, and that the fact that they could demand things and get away with it just because they were soldiers. and And the soldiers didn't like the civilians at all because they were always causing problems and unrest and upheaval and that kind of stuff, particularly in Israel. And so that didn't go over too well either. You also had other categories we'd understand, rich and poor, right? Those didn't mix in that culture. And all of a sudden, you're coming together and and praying. Uh, Old and young, you know, the generation gap didn't begin today, right? You don't get me. You don't understand me. You're a young whippersnapper. Get your act together, right? And that that was going on back then. You picked that up. And um, another big one, educated illiterate. We take it for granted today when we show up in church together that almost all of us can read. Matter of fact, if you can't read, that fact would remain hidden very well because you would not want the people around you to know that you can't read. All right, There are people in our culture who do not know how to read. There are many who have learned to read as adults. All right, But uh, the fact that in that culture, most were not educated. Okay, They did not know how to read. And so... The fact that you have this educated group and a non-educated group coming in creates quite a divide, especially if you're talking about, uh, let's read from the Bible. Right? So you have, that, you have that kind of divide going on there as well. Okay? I'm pointing all this out. There's probably more categories and, and probably ones we can compare. But the question this morning is, was unity of mind really any easier back then than it is today? And I want to suggest it's not, right? That it is hard uh, to achieve unity. It's hard to uh, do it no matter what era you're you're in. And um, when we talk about unity in mind, what are we talking about we have to have unity on? Well, even in the categories it tends to break down in this. For example, that Jesus was the Messiah. That's a very difficult thing for a Jewish person to respond to and accept. Right? The Jewish people today are still waiting for the Messiah to come. Knock knock, he already came. Right, and if you talk to any of your Messianic friends who are Jewish and believers, you you talk to them how hard it is to communicate that Jesus is actually the Messiah to other fellow Jews. It's it's still a problem today, or that Jesus is the Son of God. Right, from a Roman perspective, that's blasphemy because Caesar's God. And we have our Roman gods. What do you mean Jesus is the only God? That, that just was really difficult for the Roman population to get a handle on and, and to get wrestle with. So Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. We have to have unity on the fact that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead on the third day as a historic fact. All right? Not just a good idea, not a story, not a myth, not just something woven but actual uh, historical event that happened. We have to have unity on not only did he rise from the dead, but that he ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he, and this will come in later in the message, intercedes for us. Did you know that? That Jesus intercedes for you? That you got somebody really cool in your ballpark praying for you. His name is Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he prays for you. It says He intercedes. It says in, in uh, Romans that the Holy Spirit groans with groans that are too hard for words. Okay? He does care. He is listening. He does know you. But we have to be in unity that He's that, that. That in Him is the proclamation of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We have to have unity on that. And we have to have unity on the fact that Jesus is going to come back for us. That he will come and get his people and bring them back. We also have to have unity on the fact that the Bible is the word of God, that it's fully inspired and inerrant in the original copies, that it's our guide, our map, our love letter from God our Father that tells us how we can know him and how he can know us. We're also to be under the coaching and leadership of the Holy Spirit, that we are to be full of the Holy Spirit and that we are not to grieve or quench his efforts in our lives and that we are to walk with him on a daily basis. Those are all things that we have to have unity on, right? That we have to be of one mind. Is it always easy to achieve that? No, right? It's not. Do we have to work at it? Yes. Did the early church have to work at it? Yes. Half of their conflicts were working through, you know, arguments based off of the things I just covered. But they worked through them. It wasn't easy. And likewise today, We also have to work through them. So unity of mind is one. Second one that Peter covers is sympathy. Sympathy in this setting is not um, compassion like we would understand compassion. But sympathy in this setting is uh, more talking about being in agreement and supportive of those who are also trying to live the Christian life. So in other words, I'm in sympathy with you as we try to do this walk together. I have empathy with you of what it takes to walk the Christian life. It's easy to not be sympathetic, right? Especially being American. Hey, what's your problem? Get a job, right? Pull it up by your bootstraps. Own it. Let's get on it. Do your job, right? And it's pretty easy to become hard-hearted and uh, not have sympathy. I don't know about you, but I'm sure you see the same uh, people on the corners of the freeways and stuff that I see, and uh, and they're all over the place. Do you ever sit there and go, I wonder if they're scamming me? I wonder how much that guy makes a year panhandling off the corner of the freeway, right? It's just easy to be non-sympathetic. You're homeless too bad, right? Uh, there's a local guy here, Sean is a buddy of mine, and I wave to him, talk to him all the time, and uh, Saturday, Matt helped me haul some tables and chairs back. So I took Matt to the 7-Eleven to get a Slurpee. And uh, he told me I owed it to him. But that's not true. <laughs> but anyway, so I go in and I see Sean's at the 7-Eleven. I say, hey, Sean, I'm going to get my son a Slurpee. You want one? He goes, yeah, I'd love one. That'd be great. So I got him a Slurpee and a pepperoni stick. And we're talking. And, and, uh, and I said, hey, do you remember a month ago when uh, there was a... a a woman and she had a couple daughters and they were at the library and they handed you a teriyaki dinner? He goes, yeah, I remember those guys. I said, oh, that's my wife. I said, they, they had an extra dinner because they didn't know where I was. They couldn't find me, so they handed you my dinner. <laughs> he goes, oh. I said, was it good? He goes, yeah, it was good. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it, this idea of sympathy, the idea of you don't get hard-hearted. The other thing that Peter brings up is brotherly love. It's easy to just not care and not treat each other, that we're actually family, right? Do you, ever, do you ever have an argument with God with, why did you let that person in our family, right? And seriously, I mean, I know I should be in because I'm lovable and you like me, but you let them in? Was that really necessary? You know, you ever you know we'd never think like that, would we? But right, that this idea of brotherly affection, we uh, come from it. The word is Adelphia. We'd recognize it, right? Philadelphia: city of brotherly love. Uh word is Adelphia. By the way, that's where the title for Adelphia Bible College comes from. We run that out at Lake Retreat. Uh, it's a one-year program for students coming out of high school, and the idea there is to develop community or brotherly love. Then the idea is it's not that easy to always develop community together. It's easy to be in Sunday. It's not necessarily easy to be in community. And that's why, by the way, at Norfe we do community groups, small groups that you can get tied into. If you want to know where the action's at, you want to get in fellowship, you want to have a relationship, you want to start knowing um, who people are, Community groups is where it's at. You can ask more information of any of the elders or at the information desk and we'll be glad to help you with that. But brotherly brotherly love. And then he says, a tender heart. Now this is the term we would understand in a lot of the translations says compassion. Right? The idea of a heart of compassion. The idea here is uh, similar to the sympathy one. Um, but, for example, this morning in the bulletin, we have a family care envelope. And the envelope there is to help those of us who hit a hard spot, hit a place where suddenly there's some bills we can't cover or we ran into some illness or things that we hadn't anticipated. And um, people uh, extend compassion, right? Uh, in the old days, if you go back to America in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it was called charity, Right? And you often heard people say, hey, I don't take charity, right? It was a prideful thing uh, on that kind of deal. But this idea of extending compassion to people and realizing that not everybody's journey is the same as my journey, that others may have it way rougher than me and that I need to have a compassionate heart towards them to help them along because they've run into things that I haven't run into. And then the last one that, Peter covers, make sure I got them up there, is a humble mind. If you uh, take your Bible and just flip a a book or two before in the book of James in chapter four, it says this, that God desires jealously the spirit that he's put in us, and therefore he gives us a greater grace. And it says, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then if you, the next verse says, uh, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And many people try to fight spiritual warfare without that first critical step, which says, submit yourself to God. All right? Submitting yourself to God requires a humble mind or a humble heart. All right? We have a tendency to react in pride. We have a tendency uh, to be proud in our mind. That's what Peter's going after. And I think this, probably, this comment is probably somewhat self-autobiographical for Peter, right? He's learned something. But he's learned to be humble, humble in mind. And in that James passage, it, it says, it, he, he's quoting out of Proverbs, and then if you go to First Peter now and go to chapter 5 and look, just a chapter or two past where we are right now, won't cover too much. Of it But again, Peter says to clothe yourselves in humility. In other words, just like we put on clothes this morning so we could come to church, he says, yeah, I want you to put on some spiritual clothes and the ones I want you to wrap yourself in is humility. Okay? That, we don't do that very well. But why? Because Peter uses the exact same quote that James uses. says, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I've suggested before to us as a congregation that this is a universal principle, that God opposes the proud person but God gives grace to the humble person, right? And particularly, this has to do with humbleness of mind. There's a couple stereotypes we have to overcome when it comes to humbleness of mind. Humbleness of mind, or someone who is humble in mind, is, humbleness is not a sloppy mind, or a dumb mind, or a lazy mind. Oh, I'm stupid, goofies, and I don't know anything, so I'm humble, <laughs> right? It's not that kind of thing. Rather, it is a mind placed fully under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that that is a daily, ongoing process that we have to enter into, and it's not that easy. Our efforts at self-exaltation know no limits, okay? Let me say that again. Our efforts at self-exaltation know no limits. We love to build ourselves up. We love to tell others how good we are. Uh, ever You ever hear young kids bragging to each other? Oh, I can throw that five yards. Oh, yeah, I can throw it 15. Oh, yeah, I can throw it a half mile. Oh, yeah, I can throw it 30. Oh, I can throw it 100, right? And that trait tends to carry over into adults, right? And we tend to be proud because in some aspect, I am better than. And this is what Peter is contradicting uh, here or trying to speak against You can tell that our efforts at self-exaltation have no limits because you can tell by how quickly we break from the Lord when He's trying to tell us to do something. And why do we break? Why do we scoot out from under His leadership? Well, we do that because in pride, we really think and believe that we understand the issue better than the Lord does. And therefore... I've got to follow the best plan. And the best plan is my plan because obviously God is either a little clueless, distracted, or not paying attention. I should help him out here. Right? Any of us ever done that? Right? Usually what are the consequences of that when we do that? Anybody ever smack into that wall? Yeah, right? Ouch. Right? I think, you know, again, from Peter's life story, you can see that Peter has learned something here that's really, uh, again, autobiographical. Let's go on with the passage. Then Peter jumps into uh, what I call, I'm call i calling no payback, all right? Uh, in our culture, payback is huge. Boy, you watch the sports arena. What's the whole thing with professional athletes say? He didn't respect me, right? And do you think that's reserved just to athletes? No, no, that is across the board. It says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter's picking up on a theme here. It's going to extend into next week, and I'll just let you know that, about the suffering church and how they were to respond in the midst of suffering and persecution. And it also applies to the church today. No payback. No return evil for evil. Paul accentuates this in Romans 12 when he says, Leave room for the wrath of God, for God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Why, why do we pay back? Why, why, why do we retaliate? Why do we strike vengeance? Could it be that we really don't think the Lord will do anything? That the Lord really will not execute justice? And so therefore, we have to take it in our own hands. And Peter identifies something here that uh, most of us get the evil for evil part. But I want to focus on, for just a minute, this reviling part. What is reviling? Right? Have you ever reviled somebody? You go, well, I don't know. I don't know what the words mean. Well, let's look at it a little bit. The Greek word here is espereso, which according to Vine's Expository Word Dictionary says, in the ordinary sense, it means to insult. All right? But in this sense, where Peter's talking about it here, it goes on to say that it carries the extra meaning of to treat abusively, despitefully, harmfully with one's tongue. Okay? In modern, modern English, we call it ripping them. Right? Just let them have it. Okay? And, and we call it verbal vomiting. We've got a lot of uh, lamb blasting, shredding, tearing apart. But it's intentionally setting out to do reputational damage to another person and their character. Full of spite, full of malice. The old colloquial saying was spit nails at them. You ever heard that one? Right? Right? Just, just let them have it. Does, does that ever happen in a church? Right? Have you ever reviled somebody? Can you think of somebody that just really ticked you off, really offended you, really hurt you, And it's harder when it's personal, right? And you just, you're going to match, you know, tone for tone, level for level, uh, attack for attack, and just, you know, fight swords with swords kind of thing. And Peter's saying, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This, according to Peter, is to be avoided at all costs. As a matter of fact, we are instructed in this passage to do the exact opposite. What's the opposite? It's to bless. Okay? And Peter's saying this is very important. Why we need to do this? Because we have been called to something different. Because we are in Jesus, we are called to bless. Why? Because he's blessed us. God didn't revile us but He blessed us in His Son, Jesus. Therefore, we can bless others as we have been blessed. And this is no more supremely modeled than by the Lord Jesus Himself when He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. One of the things I love about Jesus, He never asks anything from us that He hasn't first modeled Himself. And nowhere does He model this better not to... uh, give evil for evil or revile than when he was hanging on the cross. If there was any place where he would have done it, that's where he would have done it. So let me ask a question this morning that might be a little harder to answer. Have you learned to bless with your tongue? See, because it's really important. We've talked before and mentioned many times that uh, truth is the language of heaven. Right? And we've also said that lying is the language of hell. Right? But it's also true that blessing is the spirit of heaven, where cursing is the spirit of hell. Okay? And if I find myself always wrapped up in anger, always wrapped up in, in malice, always reviling, is it possible I am not identifying enough with the Spirit over here in terms of the kingdom of God because I don't find myself blessing with my tongue. I find myself cursing with my tongue. By the way, it's very important as we come to communion this morning. I apologize. I forgot to wear a tie. Well, actually, truth be told, I didn't want to wear a tie because it's 90 and I said, you'll forgive me. So that's the deal. But uh, when we come to communion, we are to examine ourselves, right? And, one of the things about examining ourselves is just what was, where's my heart at? And this is one of the areas that we should um, examine. Have we learned to bless with our tongue, even when being fairly unfairly accused? That's much tougher. So if I were to ask you this morning, here's a way to think about it. You're saying, Steve, I'm not quite getting the point. It's not practical enough. Uh, I, I need it more specific. Let me make it really specific for you this morning. Who's your enemy this morning? Who's your enemy? Who can't you stand? Who really pisses you off? All right? Let me say it in salty language. Who upsets you? Who do you just... You maybe never say it verbally, but inside... Right? Who's your enemy this morning? Are you able to forgive them? And are you able to bless them? Are you kidding me? Do you know what they did to me? You're nuts. That's preacher talk. You don't live in the real world. Right? Right? Of course you bless. You're the pastor. You have to. Oh, really? Let me tell you, I have had people say some of the most outlandish, inappropriate things to me, and, and I have sat at my desk, and my thought was, I want to jack that sucker into the wall. I'm a really godly guy. <laughs> And I have learned to hold my tongue. And the Lord's saying, no, stop, bigger picture, right? You should be blessed that Jesus has been working with me on this. We're better off as a congregation (laughs) because he's been working with me on this since 1988. Just go ask David Weed. He will tell you I have mellowed a lot, all right? But let me tell you, it's not easy, all right? And I would suspect... Because it's not easy for me, I would suspect it's not easy for you either. Yet we are called to this, to not revile, but but to bless. Are you able to bless instead of curse? This is thoughtful as we come towards communion this morning. Then let's wrap up. I'm going to ask the guys serving communion this morning, would you now begin uh, to serve us so that by the time we hit the end we'll be done? I want to pull out a long-standing truth that Peter accentuates here. And this comes out of the next passage, the next two slides, comes out of Psalm 34. So Peter's pulling from a long-standing Jewish tradition here that has been around for centuries. And it's some basic biblical principles that he pulls from that he's using to underline the argument above. It says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. thank you, John. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So Peter is pulling and saying, hey, the same thing that applied in the Old Testament applies in the New. It's part of the setup of what we've got to work with. And that is that whoever desires to love life, seek good, should keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Even Thumper in Bambi knew this, right? What did Thumper say, right? If you don't have nothing good to say, then don't say nothing at all, right? I mean, if Walt Disney can get it right, can't we get it right, right? Two major commands, two from the negative perspective, two from the positive perspective. The two from the negative perspective are this, don't speak evil. Don't use your tongue to speak evil. And secondly, don't lie. Why don't we lie? Because God doesn't lie. We need to become people of truth. And so, don't lie because God doesn't lie. Then two commandments from the positive perspective. Turn away from evil and do good. Right? We mentioned that in context of communion. Everybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ needs to turn from evil and do good. Yes, that means this week, that means as I'm watching MSN, that means as I'm watching Yahoo, that means as I'm going through all the different things I do, the television I watch and the iPads I look at and my phone and that kind of stuff, uh, I need to turn away from evil and turn towards good. And the second positive admonition is seek peace and pursue it. Peace is not normal or natural. Peace has to be worked at. That's true of our country, that's true of the world, but it's also true within the church. We are to be instruments of peace, just as Jesus was an instrument of peace. Is that easy to do, family? (laughs) No, right? Is it necessary to do? Yes. Sometimes the hardest place to have that is right within your own home, right? Where we have to pray for the peace of our home. It's a really important part of it. And then, so that's a long-standing truth, then a long-standing promise. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And we are reminded here in this little verse, uh, one of the greatest and most unbelievable promises in the Bible. Matter of fact, it's so basic we often miss it. We often start to believe it's not true. We don't even pay attention to it anymore. You're going, wow, what is that, Steve? I, I missed it. What What is it? And uh, it's simply this God hears our prayers. God hears your prayers. He's listening. Here's the point He's listening way more than you think He is. All right? The adage comes up all the time well, why pray? The answer to why I'm praying is because God is listening. It says, and He affirms all over that He hears our prayers. So, husband and wives, why should we pray together? Because He's listening. He's watching. He knows. Okay. Stupid, dumb Pastor Steve and his husband, and wife praying together. We ever shut up on it? He's listening to that. That's reviling, by the way. <laughs> I just want you to know that. Right? Husbands and wives, we should pray together because God hears. Singles, why should you pray? By the way, I want to remind you, Jesus was single. You think he understands singleness? I think he does. Why should you pray? Because he hears your prayers. He knows, the, he knows the journey. He knows the turf. He knows the territory. He knows how to come alongside you on that. Students, why should you pray? Because he hears your prayers. Right? Whether you're in junior high, high school, college, it doesn't matter. He hears your prayers. He knows what's important. And therefore, you should pray because he's listening. Children, why should children pray? You know why children should pray? Because Jesus loves the prayers of children. Remember how Jesus said, Don't put, let them come to me. And boy, some of the most beautiful, some of the most surreal prayers ever prayed are prayers prayed by children. Okay? And let me tell you, God listens to the prayers of children. So, the question this morning as we come to communion is will we pray? Most of the time, it's fascinating. What you find is usually, uh, if a person's heart's right, the older they get, the more they pray. It's really interesting. I pray far more now that I'm 60 than I did when I was 24. Most of the time when I prayed when I was 24, I was mad prayer, right? Mad praying. Mad about this, mad about that. God, you should fix this. God, you should fix that. Now I'm starting to realize, God, maybe you should fix me. That might be a good place to start, right? Why do older people tend to pray more? Because they've been around enough. They've watched enough. They realize I can't change this. I'm going to have to pray about it. And I'm going to have to listen to what God tells me to do because I haven't been successful at being able to figure this out. You know, when it comes to communion, I want to show you how closely this is tied to this whole thing. Jesus instituted communion at the Last Supper, right? Right. What immediately came after that? Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus say to his disciples? Would you pray with me? Right. He specifically took Peter, uh, James, and John and said, Pray with me for my soul's in anguish or in turmoil. Would would you join me in prayer? And then he came back and what? They were asleep. Right? Couldn't you even pray with me one hour? One hour? Oh my gosh, are you kidding? Seriously? That's hard work. Would it have mattered if they had been praying? I think so. Would it change the results? Probably not. Would it change them? Probably so. Right? They might have actually got a handle on what Jesus was actually doing if they had prayed. But because they didn't pray, everything looked like chaos and nuts, but notice God's will still happen. Okay? And so he uses communion as a reminder for that. Right? Stay focused. Stay focused. How do you stay focused on Jesus? You pray. Right? And he says, what? This is my body. It was shed for you. Right? Broken for you. Shredded for you. It says, eat this in memory of me. And then the cup is a cup of communion. This is shed for the remission of your sins. Our sins are covered. Why can you pray? Because your sins have been covered. Tolls, the tax has been taken off. You don't owe anything. You can now pray because He hears you. He says, drink this in memory of me. We're going to sing a great song that just echoes and emphasizes and, and empathizes with all of that we just covered. Would you stand together and let's worship.